Three weeks ago, we started the study of the book of Colossians, and uh, got about halfway through the message, and I decided, hey, I'm not going to rush this because it's so important that we get a good foundation in that book as we study this book, and God has a lot on his mind for this church, and I believe this letter illuminates a lot of those things that he wants us to be about, both personally, but also as a congregation, and so it's a huge book. God put it upon my heart about six months ago to preach it this year as we go through this thought about believing. And uh, I titled the message three weeks ago, A Life That Pleases God. And so this morning it's going to be part two, A Life That Pleases God. We're going to review just for a moment about what we covered last time. But uh, let me ask you a question as we begin this morning. What does it really mean to live a life that pleases God? Have you ever thought about that? You ever ponder the thought of, am I pleasing God the way I'm carrying myself, the way I'm living my life, the way that I desire to walk in this life? Am I pleasing God? You know, I want to take it up the food chain just a smidgen there. And uh, as a pastor and as a member of this church, you guys, uh, is our church a church that pleases God? And I'd say yes and maybe no. I believe we do a lot of things well here as a church. I believe that you serve in many wonderful ways and bring glory to God in the way you carry yourselves. But, you know, I believe there's so much more that our church can do, so much more that God would have us be about as a church here. But I also believe that individually there's so much more beginning with the pastor's life that he'd like to see us be about. Have I completely surrendered my life to Jesus Christ? Have I totally given up everything for him? Is he truly number one in my life? Well, what does that mean? What's the big deal about that? Why is that important? Well, it's important because God has this perfect plan for you and I. He created us. He fearfully and wonderfully made you and I. And so if I truly want to realize life at its best, if I want to realize the life that God intended me to live, I need to put him first in my life. I need to be surrendered. I need to walk in obedience. I need to realize that God has this incredible plan for my life. And you know what? God's plan is perfect. My plan is not perfect. I'm here to tell you I've made more mistakes probably than I've done things well. But God has this perfect plan for me. And so for me to understand this incredible, abundant life that Jesus Christ talked about, if I want to have that life that Christ died upon that cross for, I need to realize that first and foremost, I need to follow God. I need to be connected to God through Jesus Christ. But I also need to be surrendered and obedient to God Almighty. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been involved in an emergency? Have you ever had an emergency in your life? I've had several. You know what happens when you have an emergency? Things change. There's an adjustment that needs to be made. I've gotten some calls in the middle of the night that somebody's having an emergency. You know what? I've got to change my schedule. It's no longer sleep time. It's getting out of bed and driving to the hospital or driving to wherever the person might have had the accident or something like that and be there. I've gotten calls at a chaplain to go out in the middle of the night because somebody's committed suicide because there's been a homicide someplace and there's children involved. I've gotten emergency calls like that and had to change my schedule and adjust my schedule. When there's an emergency, think about 9-11-2001. The emergency that happened that day, it changed the way we as Americans do life. If you don't believe me, go to the airport and try to get on the airplane. There's all kinds of adjustments that we've made since 9-11. When there's an emergency, we make adjustments and we change things. Paul right now is attesting to the fact that there's an emergency in the church of Colossae. We'll get into that in just a second. 
But I believe there's a spiritual emergency today as well in America. I think you know that as well. There's a lot of things not going the way God intended to go in America. And so there's a spiritual emergency in America, which means what? It means that we do no longer do church the old way. There needs to be a new normal for church. There needs to be a new normal for our lives. There needs to be an adjustment and a change to us as followers of Jesus Christ because we, what? Because the church is no longer really a transforming agent in America. We're seeing transformed lives. We're seeing lives change, but we're no longer making an impact at the level that we need to make an impact to save our nation. I believe the biggest change that needs to happen in America today is prayer. I want you to turn with me, if you will, this morning. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But I want to read the scripture we're going to cover today. It's 1 Colossians. It's Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14. As you find your way to Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, stand with me this morning, if you will, out of reverence and respect to the reading of God's holy word. Verse 9, Colossians 1, it says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to what? To pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, please, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power, for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, may You bless the reading of Your Holy Word. Father, in the stillness of these moments, we want to know You. Father, we want you to touch our lives, beginning with his pastors. Touch it in such a way, Father, we realize, Lord, that there's so much more out there that you have offered us, Father. So much more out there that we can be a part of, Father. So many ways, Father, that we can serve you in greater ways day by day. And, Father, our desire this morning, each and every one of us, Father, when we think about it, would, bring to, it would be to bring more glory to you. And, Father, I pray right now that we'd be able to do that, Father, that we'd truly leave this place changed yet again for eternity. Father, speak to our hearts this morning, Father, that we might see you clearer, be able to hold on to tighter, and, Father, be able to walk a little closer. Father, we thank you for all these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Paul starts it out for this very reason. He's saying, for this reason that I'm getting ready to tell you, I want you to know that God has a great plan for you. And then he begins to pray. He says, for this reason, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. Paul was a prayer warrior. Paul couldn't be there. Paul was writing this letter from jail. The only thing that Paul could do would be to pray for them, and he could write to them. And he did both. He prayed for them. I want to talk to you for just a second about prayer, and maybe this illustration is a little, it's a little stark, but I want to give you an illustration maybe and talk to you for just a moment about our prayer life. I believe if you were honest with yourself, just like me. We'd all say that I can pray more. I need to pray more. We'd also say, you know, I need to pray with more of a sense of urgency in my life too. I need to pray in such a way as that, you know, I, I truly feel this connection with God growing. I don't want to just be kind of routine in my prayer life. I don't want to just pray in such a way as I kind of go through the things and it's a checklist, a shopping list, and amen, I'm finished and eat my peanut butter sandwich. 
If I were to ask you this morning to stand where you're at, I'd ask somebody that has a daughter. I'd say, would you stand right now and you pray for your daughter, please? And you'd stand and you'd say, hey, bless my daughter. Keep her safe. Thank you for giving me such a precious daughter. And, and, I, and you'd pray a very beautiful prayer, I'm sure. But I want to change the scenario for just a second this morning. If I ask you to stand and pray for your daughter, but your daughter had just been captured and kidnapped by ISIS people in the Far East. And you had no idea what they're doing. You'd heard all the stories before that the, the whole, whole, whole horrible sexual assaults against some of the women over there, all the things about cutting off heads, all those things. And you knew that your daughter was in the hands of those kind of people somewhere around the world. How would you pray? I think you're getting my illustration here. There'd be a little difference, right? There'd be a greater sense of urgency, a greater sense of desperation. And I need, I need to pray for my daughter. Listen, why is it that we don't pray and don't live with desperation all the time? Paul was desperate for God all the time. He needed God. He wouldn't go anywhere. Moses wouldn't go anywhere without God. Are we truly desperate for God? Are we desperate in our prayers? Am I praying that way? We have a spiritual emergency right now in the Christian Church of America. We're not hitting the mark very well. We're hitting it, but we're not hitting it very well. You know, let me share this one little thought about this church. We've seen almost 900 people baptized in 14 years here. I mean, that's, that's a miracle. That's incredible. And I thank God for every one of those. And let me tell you this. Of the nine, almost 900 people we baptized, you know what? There's probably almost double that many that have made decisions for Christ that just didn't follow through in baptism. A lot of people, for whatever reason, don't get a chance to get baptized. So we've seen a lot of lives transformed, a lot of lives in this church. You know what? If we were really, really desperate for changing this world, really desperate for what God calls to do, what Paul's talking about here, we'd see people every single week being saved. Somebody was saved every single day in the early church. It says they were seeing people saved every day, day in and day out. We'd be bringing our friends to church. We'd be bringing our friends to come to know Christ. We'd be talking about Jesus Christ. This church would be overflowing. Listen very carefully. If we are truly understanding that we're in a spiritual emergency. The church of Colossae, which Paul had never been to, was in an emergency. One of his disciples, Epaphras, came to see Paul. It's, it's likely that Epaphras was a convert of Paul. He probably went to the church at Ephesus, which wasn't that far away. Probably got saved and went back to Colossae and decided, and, and most historians would say, he's given credit for starting that church. Epaphras started the church at Colossae. But he was concerned about the direction the church was going in. So he traveled all the way to Rome to see Paul. When he got there, he said, hey, Paul, I want to bring you good tidings. First of all, our church is loving each other. We're doing some neat things. We're doing great things. It's kind of like that church in the future of Beaverdam. They're doing some great things. But we've got a few issues here. We're not growing the way we need to grow. We also have some false teaching going on in our church. You know, we have some false teaching going on around us. We see a lot of these churches really confused about God's holy word. They've decided to rip out a few pages of the Bible where God says this or that about different sins. We don't need to worry about those pages because really because things have changed. God has this incredible plan for this church. God has an incredible plan for your life. You know, Epaphras was also concerned and shared it with Paul that there was a number of people in his church that were still hung up in spiritual bondage. You know, they, they say they're saved, but they're still living that old life. They kind of got one foot in the good life and one, life, one foot in the old life. 
They don't realize that they're brand new creations in Christ. They don't realize that they have this brand new life. They don't know, no longer need to carry that big bag of rocks around. It's describing the church today. Not just our church, but most churches, all churches. A lot of people are saved, but you know what? For whatever reason, they just can't shed the past. They haven't gotten to a point in their life when they realize that, I want this new life. I have this new life in Christ and I want it. It's not just going to happen. You're not going to get saved and baptized, but we'll do the second service here in a minute. And all of a sudden you come out, brand new creation. Don't have any problems from the past. Don't drag things around. God's given you freedom, but you need to be intentional and proactive about getting rid of the old life. I no longer want to drag around that bag of rocks. I no longer want to drag around my past. I don't want my future to be dictated by my past. It's in the rearview mirror. I've already passed that section in my life. You know, it's amazing here too, and we're going to get into Scripture in just a second, how Paul could have combated this false teaching with a phenomenal set of apologetics. I mean, he could have gone after it. He could have defended the faith based on apologetics, what God's Word says. Do you know what? He decided not to go that route. Paul, arguably, was probably one of the smartest guys alive at that time. He could have argued with anybody and really won the argument if they were called into debate. He could have won it. But you know what he did? He didn't go back there to settle on apologetics. You know what he did? He presented Jesus Christ in all his glory. He presented the fact of what we have in Jesus Christ. You've heard this before, but you understand how they train secret service agents in money, right? And how to understand counterfeit money. They don't spend a whole lot of time on the false money, the counterfeit money. They teach secret service agents over and over and over again what real money looks like. So the minute they see something that's not real, they realize it. This isn't real. This isn't real. That's what Paul's going to teach us here in the book of Colossians. What is real? I don't need to satisfy for second best. I don't need to satisfy for what, what uh, is out there in the counterfeit world. I know counterfeit from real. God shared, got shared through Jesus Christ and through Paul here spiritual bondage does not need to be in Christ. It's not there. He talked about the glory of God. He talked about the fact that Jesus Christ truly is majestic. He talked, that, talked about that Christ is enough, that we have all we need in Christ, that we can have spiritual freedom. You know why Paul was writing these things to church? He wanted them to understand counterfeit from right, but he also wanted to enlighten them. Enlighten them. That's huge. Every single one of Paul's letters to the churches, all the epistles he wrote, he prayed for one thing, one thing specifically, that they know God, that you know God. He wanted them to be enlightened and truly, truly know God. You know what's wrong with the church today? There's too many people sitting in churches that don't truly know God. They haven't been enlightened. And that's why I kind of, I'm excited about this book, that your pastor, first of all, but all of us, would be greater enlightened, that we'd see God in a new way, come to understand God in a greater way. For this reason, Paul says, this is why I'm writing to you, that you know these things. Paul was very concerned about the spiritual growth of the Colossian church. It's not enough to know God's will. We've got to do it. You know, we, a lot of us can know God's will. There's a lot of people that are walking in encyclopedias about God's will, but they fail miserably when they apply it. They just miss it. Why? Because they have not been enlightened. They're looking at it from the perspective of knowledge as opposed to wisdom from God and then applying it to their life. How do we apply it to our life? You've got to start doing it. All the things that God's Word says, all the things that you understand in the Bible that God's Word says, we need to come to a point when we realize, okay, God tells me to do this. I need to start doing it. 
God, forgive me for not doing it in the past. I want to walk obediently. Everything we hear in God's Word, we need to do. Amy asked me probably about five years ago when we were away on a trip. Some of you have heard this story before. She asked me, she, and she likes to go deep in some of these conversations, so I've got to be prepared and carry my Bible everywhere I go in case she asks me a hard question. But she asked me, Gary, what are your regrets in life? And I thought for a while, and she probably thought I was going to uh, come up with something profound, like business mistakes, something like that. And I said two things. I said, I wish I'd spent more time with my kids growing up. And I said, I wish I hadn't put on all this weight. And I regret that. It's interesting about regrets. And I want you to catch this this morning. This is profound. At the end of your life, your greatest regret is not going to be something you did and wish you hadn't. Your greatest regret is something you wish you did, but you didn't. Did you follow that? We're not going to get to the end of life and, man, I wish I hadn't done that when I was 45 or I, hadn't, I wish I hadn't done that when I was 30. I wish I it's going to be at the end of life, man, I wish I had done this and I didn't. Just like yours truly, I wish I'd spent more time with my kids when they were growing up. Our greatest regrets will be the opportunities that we left on the table. Don't miss that. Our greatest regrets in life will be the opportunities that we missed and left on the table. I can't tell you how many men, here's one of them right now, that wishes that I'd lived in a different way for the glory of God at a younger age in my life. I know a lot of guys that kind of caught it when they were 30 years old or 40 years old or some of us 50 or 60 years old. Caught it, finally. Man, I get this thing. I finally understand this. They get to that point in their life and they realize, man, I, I, I'm just seeing God like I've never seen before. God is so awesome. They're excited. There's a fire burning inside of them. Then they kind of ponder for a second, and God doesn't want us to live with regrets. God doesn't want us to live with guilt or shame. But they come to a point in their life and said, man, I, I wish I'd understood this back then. I've told you this before too, but it's profound. I led a little girl in Hanover, in Hanover Pamukki Regional Jail to the Lord. When she's all finished, this lady had murdered her husband. She was in jail for life. She murdered her husband. She prayed that prayer, and when she finished praying the prayer, and amen, tears in her eyes, she said, I wish I'd known this back then. What she's talking about, knowing Jesus Christ. I wish I'd known that. But listen, it's not just enough to know him. It's about walking with him, and it's about realizing what God has for our life. And I'm here to tell you, the greatest moments in my life when I realize God is using me right now to touch somebody else's life. God is using me, and he just gave me the words to share Jesus Christ with somebody else, and they got saved. I'm here to tell you, I've had a million great experiences with my family. I'm so blessed with my family and my wife. million great experiences. But by far the greatest experience I've ever had is when I realized that God just used me to impact somebody else's life. God just showed me something in my life that I could use to help somebody else with. It's given our life away. It's, our, it's more blessed to give than receive. Think about that. God has given each one of us an incredible gift. God has given every one of us in this room an opportunity to make a difference in this world, to change this world, not just for a few minutes, not a company just to get better results or better profits, but giving us the opportunity to change this world for eternity. It's incredible. And that's what Paul was wanting to get across here to his people. Our eyes haven't seen, our ears haven't heard, our mind has not conceived the plans that God has for those that love Him. Jeremiah 29, 11, you know that one too. 
I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your future and plans for hope. Plans not to harm you and for your future. God has an incredible plan for each and every one of us. How do I know that? It comes with surrender and obedience. As long as we're holding on to our life like this, God's not going to take us where we need to go. He'll still bless you. He'll still watch over you. But when we go like this to God, it's all yours, God. Open our hands up just to receive what he has for us. To be used of him, God, wherever you send me, I'm going. God, send me. When we get to that point in our life, you know what happens? We begin living a life that pleases God. I want to look at the scripture very specifically here and talk about four specific things, four characteristics of a life that's pleasing to God. Characteristic number one, we started on it last week, it's verse 10. It says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work. A life pleasing to God, number one, is a fruitful life. Spiritual fruit is a byproduct of knowing God and walking obediently. That's all it is. Spiritual fruit comes when I know God and I begin walking obediently the way God has told me to walk. Let's look at the whole idea of fruit from an agricultural perspective for just a moment. Sin is a seed. If you water it, it's going to grow. Sin is a seed. You follow that? Sin is a seed. If you water, it's going to grow. Conversely, though, holiness is also a harvest. It's also a seed. If you water holiness, it's going to grow. If I begin walking obediently, if I begin trying to live my life according to the way I believe Jesus wants me to live it, you know what's going to grow inside me? Holiness. But Satan doesn't want that. The enemy does not want that. The enemy wants you to kind of take that little seed of sin. And we all have it. Every one of us falls short each and every day. But we need to realize that. We need to realize the real from the counterfeit, the truth from the counterfeit. We need to realize that I'm not going to let sin into my life because what happens? Unfortunately, I might water it and it's going to grow. It's going to become overwhelming in my life. It's going to become who I am as opposed to Jesus Christ and holiness. Galatians 6, 9 says this, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. We need to hold on to holiness. Be holy because he is holy. We're never going to be perfect. God's not going to hold that against us. In fact, he forgives it before we even do it. He's already done that. But we need to realize those moments when we fall short of being holy and say, God, help me to be better tomorrow. God, this morning, help me to be a better follower of you today than I was yesterday. We need to be intentional about that in our life and realize I want to walk that way. Why? Because that's where God will use us. You know, it's really hard for, to imagine that a farmer might plant beans in his fields and then get upset because corn comes up. Really? You know that's not going to happen. You're not going to be upset about that. You're going to realize, hey, I planted beans. I was hoping for corn. But, but, but corn, I was hoping for corn, but it didn't come up. Beans came up. Question for you and I today in the essence of trying to plant holiness in our lives. Are you planting love or hate in your life? I think that's a struggle for all of us. It's easy to love people lovable, but it's not easy to love people that aren't lovable. Are you planting joy or ingratitude? Are you planting patience or impatience? Are you planning self-control or self-indulgence? 
We can't break the law of sowing and reaping. You're going to reap what you sow. Let me give you this one thought. If you want a bumper crop this next year of the Holy Spirit, beg for more Holy Spirit. If you want a bumper crop of holiness, pray for more Holy Spirit. God, don't let me quench the Holy Spirit. That's what happens. We're like sometimes a wet blanket on top of the, wet, uh, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's wanting to flow through us. Listen very carefully. If we do not quench the Holy Spirit, we can't help but see God come out of us. The Holy Spirit can't stay contained. Well, what happens? We quench it. What do we quench it with? The world. What do we quench it with? Fear, shame, guilt, all the things that don't come from God. God wants to flow through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. John 15:5 says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, this is Jesus speaking, bears much fruit, for without me you can't do anything. If you want God to do something new in your life, you've got to stop doing the old. You've got to stop doing the things that cause you not to be there. A life that pleases God grows in grace, number two. A life that pleases God grows in grace. Look at verse 10. That you may walk worthy, Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Growing in grace, what does that mean? It means that I'm growing in God. Growing in understanding His grace. I think a part that we may not have fully comprehended in our walk with Christ is the fact what grace is. I didn't deserve God to save me. I definitely didn't deserve God to send His Son into this world to die upon that cross for me. But He did it by grace. He did it because He loved me so much He gave me grace. Gave me what I did not deserve. Paul realized what the Colossians needed was a greater comprehension of the greatness of God. When we understand God's grace, you know what we see all automatically? His greatness. When we understand God's grace, we understand God in a greater way. I want you to think about the story of Jonah. We all know that one pretty well. You realize that Jonah was a prophet? He was called by God to be his ambassador. God told him to do what? God told him to go to Nineveh. <laughs> Here's old Jonah. Jonah's just like you and I. He's got a little flesh part to him. He hated, he hated the Ninevites. They're Gentiles. He hated them. Why are you sending me there, God? Of all places, why are you sending me there? And so you know what Jonah decided to do? Not be obedient. Not go to Nineveh. He went down to the port and got on the ship going to Tarsus. Instead of going to Nineveh, he decided to go 2,000 miles in the wrong direction. He was running from God. He figured God will never notice. I'm going to get in this boat out there. You know, God notices when we're missing the mark. God notices when we're not walking in obedience, when we're not walking in righteousness. God notices that. But he decided to go there. You know the rest of the story. The ship ran into some trouble and the storms out there in the water. The sailors were trying to figure out why is this. And Jonah, Jonah at least told the truth. It's me. I'm causing it. So they threw him overboard. What happened to Jonah? got swallowed up by a fish. He was in the belly of a fish for three days. And then he got regurgitated out onto the shore. You know what? Jonah had an incredibly better concept of the greatness of God after that experience. He realized how great his God was. I think he knew it a little bit before that. You know, I've always pondered that. I hope in my life it doesn't take any more tragedies for me to realize how big God is. I'm growing every day as I study His Word, as I spend time with Him, as I talk to Him, as I see the blessings in my life and how great God is. But Paul was wanting the Colossians, the Colossians to understand the greatness of God. Do you truly understand the greatness of God? Are you growing in such a way as God is greater today than He was last year in your life? 
Do you realize how big God is in your life? God grows us through experiences. Do you pay attention to God when you're going through a hard time? You know, Jonah did, and he was praying to God, get me out of here, save me. He realized God in a powerful way, and then when he got thrown up on the beach there, he had a whole different concept of who God is. We can miss God in experiences of life, but we need to realize that every single experience we go through in this life, that God has grown us. God has grown us through the hard times. He's also grown us in the good times. We need to realize that God has this great plan for you and I. You know what a tipping point is? Tipping point might be the momentum in a basketball game when all of a sudden the other team kind of takes the lead and goes ahead and shoots over a football game in sports. Tipping point or might be when the momentum changes in a corporation. Let me talk for just a minute about the definition, first of all. A tipping point is the point at which a series of small changes or incidents become significant enough to change bigger things. A lot of little things happen, and all of a sudden because of the little things, a bigger thing happens. A spiritual tipping point in yours and my life. This is huge. And this happens as we grow in our faith, as we grow in grace, as we grow in our relationship with God Almighty. A spiritual tipping point, a tipping point in our life in relationship to God is when we believe without resignation that God is for us, that God is for us. You know, too many of us go through life and think, well, I'm going through all alone, and why is this happening, and woe is me, and we have these big pity parties, not realizing that God's out to something special. <coughs> There's nothing that ever will happen in your life as a follower of Jesus Christ that God is not in control, but also that God has a plan for it. Romans 8:28. what does that say? That God's going to work all things together. When we come to realize that God is for us, we realize, okay, I know overall God's for me. There's not a single resignation in my mind that God's not for me. That I'm going to live my life based on the fact that God's on my team. God's with me. God's for me. The fact that God is for you, listen very carefully, was proved on the cross some 2,000 years ago. Make no mistake that Jesus Christ died upon that cross because God loved you so much he gave his son. If God was not for you and for me, he would have never sacrificed his son upon that cross. God was for you and I. I'm going to share this with you. Growing in grace. And I, I, I shared this a few weeks ago, actually a couple months ago now. And uh, it, I think it resonated with a lot of folks. A lot of you came up and said something to me about it, and I appreciate that. We had to send our youngest son to a private school. Because Amy and I, after much prayer and anguishing in our heart and uh, working with psychologists, Christians, Christian counselors, all kinds of things, just couldn't figure out how we might be able to help our son. And so God was growing us through this. It was anguishing. It was hard. It was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking to come to that decision that we wanted to send him away, but we found a Christian school. God provided the resources for it, and we sent him away. And I want to show you a result here. I got this letter. I get a number of letters from him, but this one in particular blessed my heart. He says, hey, Dad, things here at the school have been going great. I'm sure you've heard from Mom that I became a Christian on January 7th, 2016. We love the Lord. He got baptized probably five years ago. Mom asked me why, and I made that, why I made that decision. I don't know what to say. The Holy Spirit must have been working. Either I didn't notice or he worked very fast. The Holy Spirit works very fast. I know it doesn't matter. At least I'm proud I have a testimony. I'm somewhat seeing God's plan unfold in my life, especially in my prayer life. It's nice when your prayers are answered the very next morning. I got invited to Mr. Whitmer's house for dinner. I get invited about two or four times a week. 
for dinner with him and his family. We always talk about Christ, and he's teaching me everything I need to know as a Christian. He goes on and explains some of the other stuff going on at school. Did I grow through this experience? You better believe it. Has he grown through it? God has a plan. No matter what's going on in your life, God has a plan for you, for your family. And all we need to do is say, God, it's all yours. God, show me. Direct my path. Order my steps. Lead me the way I need to go. God, I need to see these things in your hand. I love Psalms 84.11. It says, The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and he gives glory. Not one good thing will he withhold from those that walk upright. God has incredible. Over and over in God's word, read the Psalms if you don't want to realize how great God is and how much he loves you. God desires for you and I to walk in a way that pleases him, but also he's going to provide every single thing we need. You know what this letter was to me? It was God validating and affirming that Amy and I had done the right thing to send him to school for a little while to learn about Christ in a real way and get his life right with God and see God move in a great way. Listen, I know there's people in this room probably that have been where Amy and I are. We're kind of trying to figure out life. We're trying to figure out our kids and how we can help them and how we can see them grow in the Lord. Listen, God wants them to grow in the Lord. You begin asking God, God, give me wisdom. God, order my steps and direct my path. God, show me the way to go. The third characteristic, I want you to watch this video for just a second. Great illustration what we're going to talk about. power. It says this, 
Verse 11, strengthen with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. We have an incredible power at our disposal. God has given us glorious power. How do we know that? Who we are. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. God has made us in his image. Think about 1 Peter 2.9. It says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that we may proclaim the praises of him who called us out of the darkness into the marvelous light. God has set you aside. Before you were formed in your mother's womb, God set you aside. He's given you that glorious power as a follower of Jesus Christ, and he has a plan for your life. Set you apart. Ephesians 3.20, you know that one, our church verse. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. I want you to pay special attention to that, according to the power that works in us. Imagine for just a moment that a millionaire got word that somebody needed some money. And a millionaire, out of the generosity of his pocketbook, wrote a check for $100 and gave it to that person. He was giving that $100 to that person out of his money. Imagine this, though, if that millionaire ripped off a blank check in his checkbook and signed it and gave it to that person and said, you spend whatever you need to get right. That millionaire would be giving that money according to his money, according to his power, not just out of his money. God is telling us that he, he wants to bless us and do incredible things beyond what we can think or imagine according to his power, not out of his power. I'm going to do this or that little. <coughs> God is always going to exceed your expectations. God desires to show off, wants to show up and show off when you call upon him, when you begin acting in such a way as you want to bring glory to him. You know what he does? He likes that. So he's going to be part of that. He's going to give you power. Too many of us are walking around here limping as Christians, limping as followers of Jesus Christ instead of walking in his glorious power. God has given you something incredible and me something incredible as well. We had four characteristics. A life that pleases God bears fruit. It grows in grace. It walks in power. Number four, a life that pleases God gives thanks. You ever notice how much we complain? Maybe you've got friends that uh, anytime you're around them, they're always complaining. But I imagine we all fall into that category once in a while. What do we complain about? Well, we complain about the weather, complain about our government, complain about our food, complain about traffic sometime. Oh, my gosh, we've got traffic today. We complain about delays in our life. I flew to Nashville this last week, and I'm, I'm thankful there were no delays in my flight. We complain about other people. You name it, we've probably complained about it at some point. How do we get to the point where we just live with a grateful heart? I've heard people complain before because they had a hurt toe. And, well, I wanted to say, well, thank God you have a foot had people say they have a headache. Well, I'm thankful that you have a head. You know, how do we look at the upside of things and the positive side of things as opposed to constantly complaining? When we come to a point in our life when we desire to bless God and be a blessing to Him, we're going to have a grateful heart. I want to share the inside secret to having a grateful heart. Gratitude comes when we realize the inheritance that we already have. Do you hear that? Gratitude comes when we realize the inheritance we already have. I don't need to worry about life. Why? Because I'm going home someday. 
I don't need to worry about life because Jesus Christ is walking me through this and he has a plan for my life. I don't have to worry about these things because God is going to do something great out of this hard time I'm going through right now. God has strengthened me. God has grown me. God has shown me new things. God is teaching me in a great way. I don't need to worry and complain because God is in control. Gratitude begins when I realize the inheritance that I already have. The inheritance of Christ. Look at verse 12 through 14 as we conclude today. It says in verse 12, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through blood and the forgiveness of sins. I don't need anything else besides that. Think about it. I got God and I'm complete. I got God and that's all I need. When we complain, you know what we're doing? We're kind of moving Jesus Christ off the throne of our life for a second and letting ourselves be up there and complain. Why I have a right to complain? I expect my food to be hot or I expect my food to be quick or expect this or that. What it might be. No. I just want to rejoice in God. I want to just thank God right now and worship God right now in this, in, in this inconvenient time in my life. In this time in my life that's not going well. I want to just trust God. Let me ask you the big question here today. I've prayed this a number of different ways through the years. I'm going to phrase it properly today. I'm sorry my wife's not here to hear me say this. But uh, what if you're only, only one decision away from having a totally different life? What if you're only one decision away from having a totally different life? Living a life that pleases God. How does that happen? I'm going to make a decision this morning that says, I'm surrendering to you, God. I want you to point out in my life the things that I haven't surrendered, but I want to walk in obedience. I'm all yours, God. I'm surrendering everything I have to you. Live a life that pleases God. Remember the Old Testament when the Israelites were leaving Egypt? God got the Israelites out of Egypt in one day. One day. It's time to go. He had to negotiate a little bit with Pharaoh, but he wouldn't negotiate, and he was just trying to get Pharaoh to come around to his way of thinking. He finally got this one thing, and he, and he led the Israelites out of Egypt in one day. It took them 40 years, though, to get to the promised land. 40 years to get to the promised land. Why? Because they were not surrendered, and they weren't walking in obedience. They didn't trust God. They thought God had made a mistake bringing them out of Egypt because, woe was me, woe was me, complaining, all these complaining things. They didn't have a heart of gratitude. They weren't desiring to see fruit. They weren't living in God's power. They weren't growing in the grace of God. It took the Israelites 40 years to realize they were free. They were still living in bondage. The Bible tells us where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. I want you to know this morning that God's Word lives. God's Word this morning has told us that we can have this incredible life out there, and that's what Paul was trying to tell the church at Colossae. But we also have it today. We can have that freedom. We no longer live, need to live in bondage. And I'm afraid to say that there's too many people that call themselves Christians living in bondage today. It may not be overwhelming bondage, but there's something that we're dragging around we do not need to be dragging around. Our invitation this morning is first and foremost to have the ultimate freedom in Jesus Christ. I've never accepted Jesus Christ in my life. I've never made it personal, but I want to do that today. Maybe you're thinking this morning, you know, maybe the reason I'm carrying so much bondage around and still kind of feel like I'm in slavery is because 
I haven't truly given my life all the way to Christ. And I want to give my life to Christ this morning. I want Christ to be my Lord and my Savior. I'm going to have some deacons down here and some pastors with me. We'd love to talk this morning about having that relationship. For the rest of us this morning, maybe it's a situation where you pray where you're at, or we'd be happy to pray with you too. But I want to move forward in my life. I want God to reveal to me the things that I'm still having not surrendered. I want God to show me the things that he had me walk in obedience in. And I can tell you a very simple process for that. The things that you know in the Bible that God says to do, just do them. Just do them. Begin doing them. God has an incredible plan for your life. I know he has a great plan for our church here. And I believe that God would use this body of believers right now to change this community, to transform this nation because of the power of God. When we get desperate about praying and we begin desiring to walk where God will have us to walk.